Welcome to Software Security Chat Chat, episode 269 for the 18th of May, 2018. I'm Chester Wisniewski coming to you from Hong Kong, and I have with me my guest this week is Ben Versharen, and Ben is in Melbourne. Welcome to the podcast, Ben. Thanks for having me, and I'm excited to be here. Yeah, it's good to have you. I, I, I'm, I'm going to try to make a habit of having podcast guests that are in the same time zone, but not necessarily the same city. So uh, you're, I think you're two hours ahead of me, and so you qualify this week from Hong Kong. Next week in Vegas, uh, I'll, I'll likely get back to our regular guest, John Shire. But um, busy week for security news, so I'm not going to dawdle too much. And beginning with uh, eFail... And eFail, uh, there was a whole bunch of hype on, on Twitter this week. Certainly, I think this story was breaking while I was on the airplane coming here to Hong Kong. And I'm like, oh, the drama, right? There's a vulnerability in, in, in open PGP and all of our secure emails are going to be doomed. It uh, doesn't really turn out to be that way, does it? No, not at all. I, uh, I was watching it unfoil live on Twitter and I also got an email saying, is it all doom and gloom? But it's far from it. It looks to be overhyped once again. No disrespect to the researchers, but uh, what initially came out to what it actually turns out to be is vastly different. Yeah, the, 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 the research is certainly valid research. The The question is around the, the unveiling and the web page and the logos and the embargo and the, the drama, drama, drama llama. I don't think that really helps. I mean, it's, it's obviously a, a, an important thing. I guess the, the advice to our listeners is that, that, uh, that I would give is simply, you should have already known that HTML is evil and HTML uh, email has always been evil. And the easiest way of exploiting this flaw in email clients is to uh, render uh, HTML in your protected messages. So, I mean, for the seven of you that use PGP email, there's actually not a problem with OpenPGP or GPG. It's more specific to the implementation of the mail user agent. Uh, and, and at least in my experience, I, I use Enigmail uh, uh, and Thunderbird to do uh, GPG uh, messaging. And the default is not to render that HTML. And in fact, uh, from what I can tell, my, my mail client is not in a default state is not vulnerable at all. So no panic, but certainly worth reviewing your settings, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I guess the one of the biggest takeaways for me is just you don't need a preempt. You don't need to put it on Twitter to say this is coming. The research is valid and it's interesting, but it would be really good just to say, well, here it is. This is what I've discovered. And don't give everybody that 24 hours to speculate, meltdown. You know, from my perspective, I thought, well, think about all the software that's been signed, you know, with PGP and similar. Is that now vulnerable? Do I need to be concerned that the updates I'm installing are actually legitimate? So... I think the key takeaway is just we don't need to hype it up. Nobody needs to panic and we don't need to tell the media unless we've, we understand exactly what's coming out. Yeah, I was a little shocked by the EFF was kind of the one fanning the flames the most, it seemed, uh, as far as the third party goes. And I kind of saw both sides of that because, of course, the EFF goes out of their way to support uh, activists and reporters and people that often need secure email communication and may not be technically savvy. And uh, those literally are probably the people that are at the biggest risk of this vulnerability would be non-technically skilled people who need complicated or secure tools like encrypted email and and that they might have changed some settings out of convenience that led them to being vulnerable. So I appreciate that the EFF was trying to get the word out to those folks. But at the same time, couldn't they have done that in one of the 37 newsletters they sent me last week instead, <laughs> instead of reacting on Twitter <laughs> as poorly as they did? Yeah, absolutely. 
Now, if we want to panic over something, we should panic over the fact that you may or may not have Adobe software loaded on your computer. Uh, right after Patch Tuesday, where Adobe's been in a pretty consistent habit of fixing Adobe Flash vulnerabilities, they also released updates for Adobe Reader and uh, Acrobat products. Uh, 50 vulnerabilities, 24 remote code execution vulnerabilities. Uh, it, this is reminding me of like 17 other podcasts I've done, except I have to replace the word Java pipe pipe flash with now pipe pipe reader. <laughs> Absolutely. And it's, it's funny because Flash is almost dead on the internet, let's be honest, but Adobe is still managing to haunt us. My biggest concern was the NTLM SSO theft vulnerability that exists within the, the latest patch. Did you notice that? Yeah, I see that the CVE 2018-4993 for those of you keeping track at home. <laughs> Absolutely. And it's... It, you know, Adobe Reader is one of the many ways to get onto a system as an active adversary, but if you're then able to also use the same product you're using as, say, the point of infiltration to then manage to end up with some NTLM hashes, you're well on your way to completely owning that network. Yeah, I, I think we need to unfortunately, um, you know, update the the advice from the podcast that Duck and I have said for years around, you know, why are you installing Flash? Please remove it. We know some of you rely on it, but if you don't, get rid of it. And it sounds like, you know, the Flash advice is finally taken. Now we have to say the same with Reader. Um, I, I did a brief survey of all my computers and none of them have Reader installed except for ones where I'm intentionally testing Reader vulnerabilities. <laughs> and I looked at it, I'm like, well, what, do I, what am I doing here, right? Like my Macs have Preview and my Linux box has Document Viewer, which I think, I forget the official um, gnome name of the package that ends up rendering them. Firefox renders PDFs, Chrome renders PDFs. On Windows, there's a default PDF reader and I believe there's one integrated in the Edge browser. And, uh, and I saw some news earlier this week that it looks like Microsoft is looking at heavily sandboxing the integrated PDF functionality in Windows in, in a future Windows version, which will uh, make it even more resilient to targeting. Why is anybody loading Reader? Yeah, I think it's just familiar familiarity uh, with the software, to be honest with you. I struggled to get that out there, sorry. But, uh, you know, users are aware of the software and hadn't been an enterprise admin before. You know, when you build your SCCM image and one of the go-to is just let's install Reader. Back in the day for me, it was Flash as well, I'm ashamed to say, but Adobe Reader is familiar with users. They're comfortable with the interface. They know how to select pages. I think it really just comes down to pleasing users. I have to admit, I mean, it is a, a, a well-designed user interface, which is not something I say about very many products. Usually I'm just picking on <laughs> user interfaces. And uh, I've done a lot of work with Reader lately, and it, it is a slick interface for, for accessing documents. But at this point, the risk far outweighs the benefits. I just don't see the point, and I have to uh, suggest or encourage organizations to only load Acrobat full where you need it. Right, like if you're actually producing documents with Acrobat, then obviously you need to install it. Uh, I mean, the other things can create PDFs, but but Acrobat really is the king, and it's a great piece of software, and it's probably a trade-off worth taking when you're creating documents. But if you're simply viewing them and you're not using super advanced uh, uh, PDF functionality, then it needs to go in the Flash Java Internet Explorer bin and be a, a fond memory from 10 years from now that we can laugh about. But again, it, it really is difficult to, to change that user mindset. And there's no alternative to PDF. So if you're a sysadmin out there, it's absolutely worth considering alternative software uh, in your corporate SOE. That's for sure.
Next up is uh, uh, Chili's, an American restaurant chain. And um, I have to emphasize American in that for our international listeners, some of this may be a little confusing because America is 20 years behind everybody else when it comes to credit card processing. But they they had a credit card breach. Uh, I don't know that we really know how many cards were involved yet. There's uh, they, they seem to have had a pretty good incident response plan about notifying the public right away, letting everybody know what happened. Uh, the, the period of compromise was between March and April of 2018. And what um, I guess my first reaction as an international traveler and as a Canadian is you're still using mag stripes in your restaurant and you're surprised that somebody compromised your computer to steal insert hundreds of thousands, tens of thousands, millions of credit cards here. Yeah, absolutely. And there's really no need for it. This is a problem that has been solved and was solved many years ago. Uh, I don't want to turn around and say we do our best uh, in the southern part of the globe, but I, I haven't actually seen a magstripe reader since I've been an adult. So, you know, for a good 15 years now or so. It's a problem that has been solved, and it's one that we shouldn't keep seeing over and over again. So get off the magstripe and embrace the chip and pin. No, I was going to uh, just compliment them for sticking with their incident response plan. Is uh, Most organizations panic when there has been a breach, and they really shared some clear and concise information with their users. So at least if you are concerned you have been breached, there's pretty clear instructions to follow, and they're willing to back their users and try and gain back the public's, public's respect. So good on them for that. Yeah, and for our American listeners, because they probably haven't necessarily seen it if they don't travel outside the U.S. often, most places in the world these days have Wi-Fi-enabled portable card readers that they bring to your table. And, you know, instead of the, the waitress wandering off with your credit card for who knows where and plugging it into gosh knows what system that has a Stripe reader, they come to your table with a little payment terminal like the one you would use at the bank. And you stick your card in, you put in your PIN, you put in how much you want to tip, and boom, right? They, they, they walk back to the uh, uh, waitress station or uh, with uh, the service station with the the card readers. So they bring it to you. Your card is never out of your sight. You have physical possession the entire time. And for people that are bad at math, it's kind of handy because you can go, oh, tip 12.7% and it'll just do it, um, which is kind of nice and uh, that kind of thing. So I, I, that's where they we need to be getting to. And I mean, any other restaurant chains in the States that are still using Stripe, I mean, you have a gigantic target, not to make fun of them about credit card breaches, but you have a giant target on your back. Like we know you're processing tens, hundreds, millions of credit cards, and we know you're using the most insecure technology that was invented in the 1950s. Of course, criminals are going to target your systems to try to steal that data, and they're also in a mad rush to do it before you finally switch to chip and pin. This problem is only going to get worse until the strike goes away. And I guess the other key takeaway is, like, how is malware actually getting onto the POS machines? Why aren't they being isolated? Why are they using being used for other purposes, potentially? Like, if you are still going down this path of magstripe readers, lock down that POS machine. Make sure it's not connected to any other systems and not online so data can't be exfiltrated. Yeah, my, my past experience suggests that those POS machines have a VNC tool installed with the password credit card. I, I've even seen the likes of, you know, the full office suite installed on there and Adobe Reader, surprise, surprise. And they're essentially used as a front of house computer as much as a POS machine. So the point of infiltration is so much easier for the bad guys. And it's another thing to encourage uh, people to, you know, use the most secure payment method available to you. So the most secure payment method is Apple Pay and Android Pay if it's available to you. If not, try to use a chip or chip and pin technology. If that's not available to you, uh, inquire as to whether you can tap to pay with PayWave or, or those types of technologies and only use a MagStripe if you like living on the, on the wrong side of the tracks. 
Brian Krebs broke a story this morning while we were preparing for the podcast about a company called Location Smart. Location Smart, I mean, to my shock and surprise, provides the ability for, you know, non-police people like civilians to track any cell phone anywhere in the United States or apparently Canada as well. And I'm not sure about internationally, but at least in the um, the test that Brian did, uh, uh, there was someone in Canada as well. So it's at least, let's say, North America. And there was a flaw in their web app that allowed anybody to track any cell phone. Um, I mean, why is this a thing? I mean, how is this even allowed? I have no idea. And what's terrifying about it is it requires a participation of phone carriers. So phone characters are willingly selling this location data. It looks like per request, um, there's an automatic billing system. So they're willing to sell their users' privacy and data to this third party without any real warrant or reason uh, for wanting that information, which is absolutely alarming. All of this makes me want to move to a country that's going to have GDPR uh, next week. I mean, GDPR may be a step too far in certain areas, and it, and it is a, a somewhat confusing law. I've been actually reading it quite a bit lately, and at, at different times they refer to European persons, European citizens, European residents, so it's quite unclear sometimes what they mean. But like the U.S. having this no-privacy law kind of environment. I mean, there's almost no privacy. I mean, the only thing really enshrined deeply in American law that protects privacy is is uh, um, against the government invading your privacy, not the private sector. <sighs> I mean, it's time for actual privacy laws. Like the US doesn't really have the equivalent of a privacy commissioner. Uh, people's data is being abused. And I mean, is there, there going to be I'm a mad as hell and I'm not going to take it point? Like Cambridge Analytica selling our location data. I mean, do we do we all have to Ed Snowden and put our phone in the icebox? Well, hopefully not because it's counterintuitive to, to put your phone in the icebox. It's not what it's designed to do, right? So well, one of the things that was quite alarming is in the privacy policy for these uh, services as well is they uh, make note that they're storing their data in 100% secure locations and are protected via a firewall. But again, this data was being exfiltrated, or accessed, I should say, via open APIs, unauthenticated APIs. So it doesn't matter what you have on the edge or where you're storing the data. If if you've got an unauthenticated API, you're literally handing anybody that information. Yeah, we, we keep your social insurance card secured in our 24-hour monitored safe that has the PIN number on the outside. That's That's essentially exactly what's happened here. Yeah. Well, uh, they're going to obviously take their lumps, and hopefully the congressional investigations around Cambridge Analytica maybe will wake up Congress to the fact that this isn't a Facebook problem. This isn't a Cambridge Analytica problem. This is a data mining and selling of Americans' private information gone off the rails, out of control problem. And it's been that way for a long time, and there's tons of organizations involved in it, including other uh, uh, breached organizations like Equifax that uh, were in the news last year. And, I mean, you, you shouldn't be addressing these individual incidents. You should be addressing the root of the problem, which is people's personal data is uh, being brokered by people who have no incentive to protect it or, 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 or to respect people's information at all, because the people who are the victims aren't even the customers of these organizations. Yeah. And uh, I guess it's a big watch this space, isn't it? Uh, something's going to change. Something has to give. It's just a matter of when, not if. Well, I encourage our American listeners to continually ask uh, better of your congresspeople and to continually stay active and involved in, in asking questions about these types of things because uh, they're the people that can change it. And if you don't like them, vote them out, but continue to communicate with them because it's incredibly important. And lastly, uh, Google sort of s uh, slipped a little message in at their I.O. conference suggesting that in Android P, which we don't know what the name of it will be yet, but the 
next release of Android uh, this autumn in the North America, uh, in the Northern Hemisphere will require OEMs to keep the operating system up to date. And uh, I'm excited about that, but I'm also a little apprehensive as to how is that how is it going to play out? I know I know you're an iPhone user, but you were expressing some quality concerns with your iOS experience lately, and we're we're pondering Android. I mean, what what where do you fall on this? Look, I, I'm actually for this. I, I think it's absolutely needed for the Android platform to put this liability back onto the to the actual manufacturers to say if you want to use our software, you must conform to our standards, is fantastic. And I think a lot of iPhone users will probably start to, to consider Android if they go down this path. And yeah, as you said, I, I'm concerned about the quality of code that's coming out of Apple at the moment. I always was concerned that I would commit to, say, a 24-month contract, get handed a brand new handset, and all of a sudden it would be falling out of date after 12 months if Google are putting this liability back to the manufacturer and I know my phone will remain supported and up to date for its lifetime. I'm all for it. Yeah, I, I agree. I'm, I'm curious about the implementation details. I mean, Google's been struggling with this problem for a long time. And, you know, one of the things they did a few years ago was to decouple the apps, things like Chrome and Google Maps, uh, from the operating system and make them things that got updated through Google Play. And that way, if your operating system got way out of date, they could at least make sure that they could keep Chrome up to date or they could keep, you know, some of the more uh, attacked, uh, the, the apps with attack surface that uh, could be exploited. Obviously, it hasn't worked so well. Um, I mean, the, the fragmentation the Android market is still insanity. Uh, I think even for the last two versions of Android is like less than 10% of devices because many of these cheap devices, I mean, that's the real question, I guess, is are they going to force everybody to move into Android P as well and prevent them from legally obtaining Android if it's version four, five, six, even seven? Because, uh, you know, I'm here in Hong Kong, you go to an electronics shop and you look at the budget Android devices, none of them are running Oreo. Almost none of them are running Nougat. And that isn't um, a feature that you necessarily advertise when you're selling the device either. You talk about the storage capacity, the brightness of the screen, the selfies it takes. Nobody says, you know, hey, and operating system updates. But obviously in our dream world, that is something you would advertise. So I'm hoping that Google, you know, makes it a requirement that you not just update the operating system, but you don't ship anything older than the current release or maybe two. And that might raise the price of some of these devices, right? Because I think the newer versions of Android require encryption, which takes a little bigger CPU power, that kind of stuff. Yeah, the, the reaction from the community is going to be interesting here as well, is, you know, one of the reasons why people have been so pro-Android for so many years is because it's an open platform, you can modify and play with it as much as you like, as opposed to Apple, where it's essentially, this is what it is, here's your defined backgrounds, your ringtones, here's the applications, don't look under the hood, or we won't let you look under the hood. If Google don't go down this path, the, the backlash from the community may be interesting. Well, give Apple a little bit of credit. At least if you try to look under the hood, they no longer send the lawyers. Yeah, that's a good point. But yeah, I, I, I think Google's created a bit of a mess. And it's this sounds like the most sensible way forward. Uh, of course, the devil will be in the details as always. I mean, um, how they go about implementing it and how they work with the OEMs to come to uh, a transition plan that doesn't necessarily put anyone uh, uh, in a bad uh, uh position in the marketplace. It'd be much more complicated, but we'll see how it goes. I mean, that's, I love my essential phone because it gets updates a couple days before real Google phones. And, uh, you know, if, if, if they're, I guess it'll level that playing field. Like right now, when I look out there, I'm like, yeah, there's three or four devices I can buy and that's it because I want those updates. If everybody has the updates, 
uh, it completely changes the marketplace because suddenly there's more vendors and more brands and more options for me if I know they're all going to be up to date. It's kind of kind of a good thing. Yeah, absolutely. I think uh, from my pers- uh, for, yeah from my perspective, it's definitely a positive step forward for Google. So. Yeah, power to them, and uh, let's see how this pans out. Yeah, the the one risk I'm I'm worried about is if it raises the cost of devices a little bit, it could lock some people uh, that can't afford, you know, top tier devices like Apple devices and Pixel devices out of being able to get new handsets. You know, if the pri- there's a lot of price sensitive markets where those old crappy Androids, while they may be vulnerable, are at least um, ushering people into the um, their only access to the internet or payment systems and things like that. So uh, hopefully Google will figure that all out. We'll 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 keep you up to date if we learn more. So that concludes Sofa Security Chat Chat 269. As always, for all the latest security news, please visit nakedsecurity.sophos.com. All of our podcasts are on iTunes. They're in the uh, Google podcast market now. They're on TuneIn and anywhere else you find great podcasts. And until next time, stay secure.